and I gotta tell you, I'm not getting anti-Semitism from Muslims. I didn't get any death threats from any Muslims. We didn't get a bomb threat from a Muslim. They came from outside the minority communities. From Interfaith Alliance, this is The State of Belief. I'm Interfaith Alliance President Reverend Paul Brandeis Rauschenbusch in New York City. When when I lose family in Gaza and, and the local rabbis and the local Jewish community send me condolences and send me a, a fruit basket, um, I, I have hope in humanity. Again and again, we're seeing GOP-dominated state legislators testing the wall of the separation between church and state in ways that wouldn't be welcome at the federal level. Not yet, anyway. Among the Interfaith Alliance affiliates working in key states, Interfaith Alliance Oklahoma has certainly been kept busy. In addition to challenges at the State House, the organization is doing great work in making sure the tensions we see from different faith traditions in some communities are not manifest in Oklahoma. This week, I'll talk to two leaders about the challenges and opportunities they see there. As we celebrate the 18th anniversary of the State of Belief, I want to make sure you're subscribed to the next generation of the State of Belief podcast. Please visit stateofbelief.com slash new podcast, and you'll hear this conversation in full, as well as recent interviews with Rain Wilson, Bishop William Barber, Imam Abdullah Antepli, Rabbi Sharon Brous, and many, many others. And coming soon, my exclusive conversation with Rob Reiner and Dan Partland about their essential new documentary film on Christian nationalism called God and Country. It would really help us to have you subscribe, rate, and tell people you're close to about all that you're hearing. The State of Belief is made possible in great part by the generous support of our listeners. If you've made a donation, thank you for helping keep these conversations heard by more people who need them. If you haven't pitched in yet, information on how you can keep this show on the air is available at stateofbelief.com, and you can find out more about the work of Interfaith Alliance and join us at interfaithalliance.org. And now to my guests. Rabbi Abby Jacobson is rabbi at Emmanuel Synagogue in Oklahoma City. She's the former president and a longtime board member of Interfaith Alliance of Oklahoma. Dr. Imad Chassi is currently the chairman of Islamic Studies, chaplain, and professor at the Wembley School of Religion at Oklahoma City University. He serves as imam at the Islamic Society of Greater Oklahoma City. Rabbi Jacobson, Imam, and Chasi, welcome to the State of Belief. Thanks for having us, Paul. Thank you. Thank you so much. I'm just so glad to be able to talk to you both. And uh, first of all, I want to start with a moment of gratitude. Thank you for all the work you are doing in Oklahoma. I think it's hard to understate what it means to represent the Jewish community and the Muslim community in a state uh, like Oklahoma. And I think it's helpful for our listeners to remember, oh, yeah, there's lots of Jews and there's lots of Muslims in Oklahoma. The whole country is filled with religious diversity. And, you know, there's a narrative out there that somehow wants to erase that, but that's actually not the case. So thank you for what you're doing at Interfaith Alliance and for your own communities. It's just so important. Thank you so much. Uh, There's a lot of Christians in Oklahoma too, by the way. 
That one I've heard about, though. <laughs> that one I have heard about. We're going to get to it. But but let's start just like with a little background about Interfaith Alliance of Oklahoma. Rabbi Jacobson, you've been involved with Interfaith Alliance for quite some time. Can you give me a little bit of the history about when it started and some of what are, yeah, some of the priorities? Yeah. Thank you. Um, And it actually, I think, neatly uh, dovetails into uh, Dr. Nchasi's um, path with the interfaith community and uh, Muslim representation in Oklahoma as well. As we tape this, it's January 17th. Our founding day is actually January 18th. So tomorrow we celebrate our Founders Day, January 18th, where a group of eight all uh, white Christians, um, I think one Catholic person and seven Protestant people, some clergy, some not, some couples, some singles, got together and said that things needed to change in Oklahoma, that there was great diversity, and that smaller religions, all of whom clock in at less than 1% of the state population, were getting forgotten, and that as people of faith and people of the majority ethnicity and the majority religions or religious identities, that they needed to do something about it. And so they got together and founded um, the Interfaith Alliance of Oklahoma, which started out uh, primarily focusing on Oklahoma City. I was lucky enough to be brought in by Reverend uh, Jeff Hamilton of Blessed Memory, who was the president of the Interfaith Alliance for at least six years. And when I came newly minted out of rabbinical school in 2009, he took me to lunch and said, glad to have you we're looking forward to you being a part of the Interfaith Alliance. And I thought, oh, okay, I, <laughs> I guess I'm going to do that now. Dr. Nchasi, how, how did you uh, arrive at the Interfaith Alliance of Oklahoma? Well, um, uh, Jeff Hamilton could be very convincing. He was also a politician. I uh, believe he was a representative prior to that. Uh, of course, the Interfaith Alliance was, in my opinion, a direct result of Oklahoma City bombing. So after the Oklahoma City bombing, people pointed the fingers at the Muslim community the first day and a half. And the people who came together thought it would be awesome to bring all those people together. As, as uh, Rabbi Jacobson said, it started with a majority Christian, but a little by little, many of the other religions were brought together. So same, the late Jeff ha Hamilton took me to lunch and convinced me that there has to be communication in Oklahoma City in the light of all uh, the violence that happened. And then, you know, hesitated a little bit in the beginning, but then uh, he was very, very persistent. And here we are. And here we are. And I think that's such an important memory is Oklahoma City bombing. I, it was such a major event in the life of the country that I hate to say it, in Oklahoma, it still looms large, but in the rest of the country, people forget this domestic terrorism done by a white man who was outraged at the government. And yes, immediately blame went towards the Muslim community and you know, looking outside rather than internally gazing inward and saying, like, how are we cultivating this kind of extremism within America, as we wrestle right now with the kind of a, a growing violent extremism among white Christian nationalists, it's really important to recognize that history in Oklahoma, out of which sprung this interfaith movement. And I, you know, I think 
You could say, oh, you know, a bunch of white Christians started the thing, but at least they were looking around saying, what can we do? And I think that that actually is a good, you know, everybody should see, like, how do we use the power that we have to widen the circle? I applaud your Founders Day, and and I'm glad that it's gotten to this point where you two have this sort of amazing representation and when people look to religion in Oklahoma, they can see you two and say, oh, that's religion in Oklahoma. I mean, it's just really amazing. Um, what that is was... it like in the context of Oklahoma? Dr. Nchasi, maybe you can speak to this a little bit. Like, there is still an overwhelming sense of white Christianity. And I remember when your governor was reelected and he kind of did a prayer seeming to like consecrate Oklahoma for Jesus. I just thought, what must people in Oklahoma feel like who are from different religious traditions or no religious traditions? What does it feel like for your governor, who has just been elected supposedly by all the, you know, by the people's will, to immediately go and kind of elevate one religious tradition over others? Dr. Nchasi, what's your general sense of the environment in Oklahoma, and and how have you been able to support your community uh, within that framework? Uh, we're definitely a minority in Oklahoma. You know, we're less than 1% of the, uh, of the population uh, the Muslims are. Uh, so, yes, uh, sometimes, uh, um, you know, uh, sometimes this is also the state that tried to um, ban uh, Sharia law they try to ban something that is not even existence and that doesn't even exist or doesn't bring any threats to the state whatsoever. Um, you know, um, I remember somebody sending me uh, um, uh, uh, a, a text, a, a message telling me, take your Shania law and go back to the dessert. Uh, they meant to say, take your Sharia law and go back to the desert. So I sent them back. You know, I said, you know, Shania is a country singer, which I like. And, um, you know, the dessert I also love to eat after dinner. You know, <laughs> you say, go back, go back to Islam. I said, well, Islam is not a country. Shania um, oh, is a, uh, oh, a country singer. And, and dessert is something that you eat after uh, dinner. So anyway, um, uh, you know, we try to outreach as in, in many possible way, any platform we get, we try to outreach. Um, you know, uh, we try to say, hey, we're cool here. You know, we're we're um, uh, we're part of the Oklahoma. We love Oklahoma. We want Oklahoma to love us back. Uh, sometimes the politician, when the politician, you know, cross the line, we try to outreach to them and educate them. Uh, but yeah, it's it's a struggle. It's a struggle as a minority religion, and um, we strive uh, to be recognized every single day. Yeah, yeah. T uh, uh, Rabbi Jacobson, t tell me a little bit about um, Jewish life in Oklahoma and and how that experience m m mirrors uh, Muslim experience, and uh, but also I'm sure has its own uh, characteristics. Yeah. Um we're 0.0013% uh, of the Oklahoma population. We think there are about 5,600 Jews in about 4.2 million people. Um, for anyone who wants to recreationally check my math, um, that I think means there are a little more than, um, uh, that we're a little less than a third the size of the Muslim population. Um, we're 
you know, there are smaller religions in Oklahoma. Um, but one of the things that's really lucky is that we could all be siloed in our own nonsense, in our own path through life. But we're not. All the minority religions are pushing really hard to be part of the interfaith community, um, which is not something that all of my colleagues get to deal with in their various pulpits in various cities and countries, um, which is is uh, tremendously um, – it's lucky and it's hard fought um, because we don't right. all have the same um, – we don't all have the same ideas of things, and in the end of the day, it doesn't matter. Because we're all dealing with the same things. We're all dealing with um, uh, holding people's hands while they go to a school and explain how their child is being marginalized because of their religious beliefs, how um, free Bible giveaway day or sitting on Santa's lap in school or what's served on the cafeteria menu, or yes, my child has to miss this day of school. Why am I getting a nasty note from the from the school? Um, you know, we have to deal with all of that. Um, how did it feel when the governor uh dedicated the state to Oklahoma? By and large, my congregants all went, Ugh. and it it was a part of um it's a part of being a minority, as I don't need to tell. Most people are minorities in some way, at least one way. It's a part of the minority experience. This is just one thing. It's one thing in a bunch of things. We, the Interfaith Alliance, have tried very hard to take a stance that um, calling people in is better than calling people out, and that people do things for um, reasons of um, uh, their own limits of their own knowledge and experience. And so we have tried at every turn to be helpful, to give um, suggestions and make respectful small requests to take one step in a direction, you know, asking that at public functions the word house, the term house of worship be used instead of church, that kind of thing. Um, you know, it's it's deeply ingrained in a lot of people's vocabulary. Um, it's uh, It's very hard because so many people here self-identify as Christian and as particular types of Christian, um, there isn't a constant reminder of the existence of other people or their needs. And, you know, I, I, I certainly can't fault people for that because I'm sure that in Borough Park, the Jewish community doesn't think a whole lot about the needs of the Christian community because there are fewer Christians in Borough Park than there are Jews. I'm sure that it's a, um, I know that it's a human thing, and I know that it's a part of yeah. a constant conversation. Um, it's still bothersome. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, I think the whole the whole the whole idea is is that the. Um, I, well, I love what you're saying. I mean, it's a very generous way and i think sometimes the most effective way is an you know an invitation towards broader understanding uh, mm -hmm. rather than a condemnation of ignorance and i sure. think that those two things are are are, are similar ideas uh, or similar efforts but sometimes uh, you know the not only the tactic but ultimately the the long run 
of what it means to feel um, welcomed and feel, you know, uplifted. And all of us, as you say, all of us have been, you know, called in and said, have you really thought about this? I've, right. That happened to me when I went to seminary, really around race. I really needed education and, and I really appreciate all the all the education I did get, and some of it was difficult, but it, it definitely made me a better uh, person, a better American, a better pastor. The other thing I, I heard you both saying, and I just want to recognize it, it's so important that you don't need to agree on every single thing in order to be in conversation or coalition with one another. And I I feel like right now that's a really important idea, and I am curious, like, for both of you, what are some of the priorities in Oklahoma right now that feel really um, pressing for the Interfaith Alliance and for the broader community? And Mama and Chasi, do, do you want to offer any any sense of what are some of the priorities that you you have in in Oklahoma? Well, being in a minority, um, um, I think the rabbi just just uh, articulated that uh, when we uh, when we when the minorities come together. Uh, they, you know, although we are less than 1% of the population, uh, the Jewish community is um, also small and uh, the Buddhists and the Hindu, but coming together in Interfaith Alliance uh, gives us a voice, um, uh, a voice that is uh, amplified through the uh, Interfaith Alliance and through other Interfaith uh, uh, organizations, so to speak. So um, I'm not only speaking for 1% of the population or I'm not, you know, I belong to an organization that have uh, uh, multiple faiths uh, coming together. Yes, sometimes uh, we don't uh, politically or theologically agree. That's what I tell my students every single day, that, um, you know, even people that go to the same congregation, to the same church, not necessarily theologically agree. Uh, but they have common goals um, uh, moving forward. They have common goals uh, to achieve. Um, uh, in in Oklahoma, uh, by far, um, I think the rabbi will agree with me, is educating people about uh, 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 other people's faith, that we do exist, uh, we do have needs, we do have, um, you know, we are part of this uh, community, we are part, part of this society, uh, and we are here to love Oklahoma and to serve Oklahoma as Oklahomans, uh, although we might not worship the same or we might not have the same political affiliation, but we're here, we exist, and we want to give uh, as much as uh, possible to the community that we live in. We, uh, um, you know, uh, try to educate our elected officials, we try to educate our um, you know, uh, a law enforcement would try to educate anybody that uh, is open-hearted and open-minded. Um, that is that is our priority. Um, uh, just just to educate people and tell them we're here, we exist, and we want to be a uh, a, a vital organ uh, in Oklahoma. Not only an organ, but a vital organ uh, in the in the and the bigger in the bigger uh, bigger uh, um, uh, prospect of the of our state. And as Oklahomans, we have a lot of the same concerns that everybody else does. Um, predatory payday lending, the opioid crisis. Um, uh, Oklahoma is toward the top of the nation in uh, childhood food insecurity, um, in uh, women incarcerated, babies born behind bars, um, we're toward the top of the nation in 
uh, domestic violence and children witnessing uh, domestic violence in the home. Uh, you know, these are all these are all the same issues. Our education system is toward the bottom in the country publicly. These are all the oh yeah. Also, we have the don't say gay and trans bill. We have uh, mandatory uh, bathroom assignments in public schools. We have um, we have groups of immigrants in Oklahoma from all over the world, both recent immigrants uh, from uh, Afghanistan and Ukraine, immigrants who are older from uh, the large Vietnamese population back from the Vietnam War and everybody in between. These are all oh, public transportation. These are all the same local concerns we all work for um, and that we all deal with in our own communities, while at the same time, as Dr. Njasi said, we're all out trying to make sure we have enough elbow room for our own religion and other religions and make sure that we are in a constant process of uh, polite education, welcoming. Um, I'm sure Dr. Nshasi's mosque has the same thing we do of seasons when re world religion students from universities descend on our houses of worship to um, show up as spectators, um, you know, that kind of thing. And if... If I may offer a funny story, there was there is a local university that has a medical school, and every year they do a faith in medicine discussion panel where they bring as many multi-faith religious leaders as possible, and this monstrous um, auditorium-style stadium seating of first-year medical students ask questions. And 10 years ago, I showed up with my daughter who was uh, six months old at the time, you know, babysitting fell through and my mother got the flu and I couldn't do anything and I show up with a baby. She sat perfectly happy in my lap and every time I opened my mouth to speak, she started screaming. And without saying a word, Dr. Oh, Nshasi <laughs> reached over and picked her up out of my lap and started playing with her. And when I was done, he gave her back. There was nothing I could do to keep her calm. And every time I talked, he just took her and she loved him. Um, none of the medical students oh remember God, anything I that was said. I love that. They don't remember anything that was said during that panel. Many of them are doctors today. They don't remember a thing we said, but every single one of them remembers the imam holding my baby while I talked and how much she loved him. And she continues to be... Um, my kids, uh, when they see Dr. Nshasi at world religion events at the university, will run across the room. We're, I brought <laughs> my two elder ones to a, a university event, and these, these two little Jewish girls with their kippot on take off running across the room yelling, Imam! And go hug him. Oh and my God. Stopped. Yeah, I love that. That is such a great I, story. I tease the rabbi's husband, Juan, with that all the time. <laughs> Up next, more with Rabbi Jacobson and Imam Nchasi. You can hear full episodes of The State of Belief anytime on our website at stateofbelief.com. You'll find links to topics we discussed this week, as well as transcripts and more. And make sure you subscribe to the Next Generation Podcast at stateofbelief.com slash new podcast. That's stateofbelief.com slash new podcast. You're listening to The State of Belief, where religion and democracy meet. 
Welcome back to The State of Belief. I'm Interfaith Alliance President Reverend Paul Brandeis Rauschenbusch. My guests are Rabbi Jacobson and Imam Enchasi from Interfaith Alliance of Oklahoma. How did how do you t- how did you two first meet? Uh, what was the first time that you two were in the same room with one another? I have no doubt that it was on one of the many world religion panels. We are all constantly asked to be on. Is that right, Doctor Enchasi? I know you came to the synagogue soon after I arrived. It's been 15 years. So it it wasn't over a catastrophe. It was in a kind of natural intermingling of... I just think this is a great story, and we don't hear enough of these stories. We always hear about how people are at each other's throats and everybody's just, you know, and, and rightly, there is a lot of polarization. There is a lot of tension and conflict, but there's also people like yourselves who are intentionally and in some ways like with joy included coming together in many ways and you two um just really i think appreciating one another's humor the the ability to both be uh be funny yourselves but also like make each other laugh and i i just think that there's lots of ways that interfaith relations actually are meaningful and we think oh it has to be like ritualistic or it has to be over some sort of really important event but it can also be around joy and happiness and you know holding up each other's children and you know these are really important definitions of what interfaith can be and i just think i just love um the inspiration you're giving me here today thank you so much thank you and i don't think it's news it's certainly not used to news to you pastor but for for our listeners who might not know being clergy is extremely lonely it's tremendously (laughs) lonely and the hours we keep don't always allow for socialization we have to spread our socialization within our communities around equally so that we're not prioritizing the congregants who are more fun or closer to our own age or have kids are the age of our kids so that we're not god forbid neglecting and um my two closest clergy colleagues are my fellow rabbi rabbi varen harris and dr Enchasi. And Dr. Enchasi and I, there have been weeks where Mm. we see each other three times as the Jewish representative and the Muslim representative at a world religion panel, at a funeral director's master's degree diversity panel, at a city thing, at a state thing, at a whatever, where there have been times literally we both run in and sit down. What panel is this again? Gosh, I don't really know. Do you have it on your phone? I think I have the questions here somewhere. Oh, no, those are the questions for tomorrow. (laughs) Rabbi Jacobson or Rabbi Verit are often our guests in my class. And I took a teenage group to go visit Dr. Nchasi's mosque, um, where not only was he generous enough to give us a tour, but also... One of the things my students remember, not only his humor, but also talking about the times the mosque is protested and um, his bravery and generosity with bringing pizza and water bottles to protesters who are protesting against the mosque and opening doors with generosity. Those are things that really stick with kids and that to to have other people around who understand the sound system in the main sanctuary doesn't work again. And if we don't get it fixed in the next two weeks, somebody's <laughs> going to blow a gasket because we've got uh, a holidays. Yeah. Like 
Yeah. We all know what that feels like. Yeah. <laughs> yeah the, the glamour of religious leadership. I, I, I want to talk about, just mention one thing that you were talking about, like that there's funeral directors who want to talk to you, that there's medical students that want to talk to you. I, I have to say, like, we can't just skip over that and not recognize that's progress. The fact that there's a recognition that if you're a funeral director in Oklahoma or other places, you should know the rituals that are accompany that with Islam and Judaism and other traditions. Like that's what it means to be good at your job. That's like really important. And it's it's just wonderful that while I'm sure from your perspective, it's like, okay, it's tedious, but it is actually um a sign of progress and a sign of recognition that um, our country requires our professionals to be literate and to be aware and to be intentionally welcoming of people from various religious traditions. I think that's really interesting. One of the most important kind of government uh, religion cases that is happening in the country is actually happening in Oklahoma with a Catholic school being given public money uh, in order to, um, and I'm just curious as Interfaith Alliance, I know, I know there's been um, some real concern about that. Either one of you, can you talk about what that means for the public school system in Oklahoma and how you all have been talking about it internally as well as publicly? Absolutely. Um, I we've the Interfaith Alliance has had this issue before, not only with um, religious institutions with charter school money, with private schools, with um, people here are desperate to get their kids good education. And the way to do it is not easy and not straightforward. There is um, a real lack of coherent vision. And when there is vision, it doesn't always work out the way people want it to. And when so many people have taken the option to put their kids in private school, um, you know, there's a disconnect with the there's a disconnect with the most involved parents who are now involved with their kids in private school, people who represent communities that ha don't have a lot of opportunities will grab at everything because something has to educate their children and still allow their parents to go to work. So um, mm. Oklahoma has – the Oklahoma landscape is very interesting. We have a lot of homeschooling here, and it's completely unregulated. We don't even know how many children are being homeschooled because you don't have to sign anything during the pandemic – with my medically fragile mother living in my house, we took our kids out of public school and homeschooled them until we could get them vaccinated. And I didn't have to sign anything to take my kids out of school. They don't have to be tested. Nobody has to approve my curriculum. They don't have to take the regular third grade reading comprehension, you know, test. That makes this landscape very challenging. There are a lot of houses of war, large houses of worship that push homeschooling that don't necessarily push a homeschooling curriculum with it. So we have a lot of parents who are doing DIYing their own homeschool curriculum, not necessarily for the better. 
out of things they print off the internet or not anything at all. We also have a un unregulated online charter schooling where people put their kids in online charter school because they think it's going to be a good thing and then scandal after scandal about they're not learning anything, it's taking public money, the kids on the roster that don't exist, the kids being marked as present for the entire year because they logged on once, you know, um, all of that makes the the schooling landscape here different than in a lot of communities. Layer on top of that the idea that um, charter schools are going to get public money. Sometimes when KIPP Academy came, that was a great idea for a charter school. The kids who go there are absolutely blessed and lucky to have that kind of a charter school, just as an example, in their lives. And then the idea that a religion should get public money, I understand why people would want to do it. From the perspective of the Interfaith Alliance, that is problematic in two ways. First of all, because it's sending public money to a religious institution, which will absolutely use that money to not only educate about, but to promote, teach, and proselytize to that faith, um, but also because um, it will create a system that we cannot guarantee is ever going to be implemented equally. And although many people have responded, well, that's fine. Why don't you start a Jewish charter school? Why don't you start an interfaith charter school? Why don't you start a something else charter school? You know, um, we need public money in the public schools. And I respect the heck out of people who want to send their kids to a private parochial school. Um, private parochial schools have scholarships and are available for the communities they serve. Um, they serve a separate function in our community, but to further gut the public school's funding, I got to say that funding isn't going to come out of my kid's public school because I happen to live in a higher property tax neighborhood. It's going to come out of the schools where the kids' parents have the lowest income, the schools have the fewest opportunities. Um, we have members of our congregation who are school teachers. Um who we practically have to do therapy for them because they're mm. we have to club together at the synagogue to buy sub school supplies for their students and apples and protein right. bars for their kids and they sit in classrooms where the kids are sitting on the radiators because there aren't enough desks and um right they have to right. teach the kids remedial math before they can teach them high school science so the the idea of yeah. bringing publicly funded religious charter schools in on top of that where we can't ever guarantee that that publicly funded charter school money is going to go to the education that our public schools mm. need to be teaching and that right. isn't necessarily right. going to be right. applied equally to everybody has been really problematic right. for us. Right. Uh, in this moment where there's a heightened, you know, before, even before anything that was happening in the Middle East, there was a spiking anti-Muslim incidents of hate and even violence. There was spiking anti-Semitism. We saw censorship of Muslim books, censorship of, of Jewish books. Um, those are the two highest banned books. Um, I'm curious, like, 
what is a way that um, you know we're we're navigating this that we can talk about hate in this country, like that is directed specifically at the Muslim community and the Jewish community right now. What are ways that both of you, with your respective communities, but also as members of an interfaith group, can talk about this spiking of hate and um, and violence against your communities? Well, um, I want to back up just a little bit. In 2017, the Muslim community, the Jewish community, and of course, the Christian community, we took a, a bold step towards going to the Holy Land, and uh, we all went on a trip, we call it dual narrative. The Muslim community, the Jewish community, Rabbi Jacobson, Rabbi J- uh, Varid, and others, and myself, and, and other uh, members of the Muslim community, we went to the Holy Land, and we visited uh, many sites. We call that uh, an unsanitized visit to the Holy Land. We discovered in our trip common roots common heritage, and also as American Muslims and as American Jews, common threat. Uh, Anti-Semitism, yes, at its all-time high, and Islamophobia is at all-time high. And we thought that within uh, our own community that we could come together to address Islamophobia and anti-Semitism. In the root of anti-Semitism and Islamophobia is racism, uh, hatred, and bigotry and xenophobia. And we both, as a minority religion, experience that. Although anti-Semitism and Islamophobia is not a funny matter, but you know some of the haters are not really that educated. I remember one time somebody called the mosque and say, "Is this Rabbi in Shasi?" I said, mm, "Okay, close enough." You know, and, 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 oh my God. and he and he said, "We're gonna come on. The, we're gonna come on the Sabbath and uh, you know do bad things to you." And then I said, okay, okay, thank you. But you do know that you're calling from your cell phone and we have your number. <laughs> and I called the rabbi. I said, hey, rabbi, I think somebody's trying to threaten you, but he called me by mistake. Um, you know, so it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a real incident. It's something that's actually happened. So I think after 9-11, uh, the first call I received was from Rabbi Pakman of the Temple Bene Israel. He said, you know, it's going to be a lot of uh, Islamophobia as Jews, we have gone through this uh, before, and, and I want to give you some tips of how to maneuver and how to really uh, go about trying to weather the storm. And I really appreciated that. I, I really appreciated that. That just added more trust uh, to the relationship we have. So basically, we're both in this together. We understand uh, Islamophobia and anti-Semitism is the same disease, and uh, we're both battling that. And um, Dr. Nshasi was kind to talk about how we're dealing with it internally. I know each of us takes it as a personal mission to make sure, and my colleague Rabbi Harris as well, that within our own communities, we are not we are not promulgating that hate against each other specifically. My community in the dual narrative trip, Dr. Nshasi referenced, my community was so touched by the fact that Dr. Nchasi posted about his experiences at the Holocaust Museum in Jerusalem and that he would post that on his social media was so meaningful to folks in our community. On October 7th of this year, 
the first person to reach out to me was Dr. Anjasi, to reach out to me and Rabbi Harris and the president of the local Jewish Federation. Are you okay? Is your family okay? We're praying for you. We're thinking about you. Dr. Anjasi lost relatives in Gaza as what I shudder to call collateral damage. Our community put together a basket in, in the Jewish community. You bring food after someone has died, and our community put together a shiva basket for Dr. Anjasi's family. It's been our honor to work together with the Muslim community on Afghan refugees Many, many of our folks are in Oklahoma because they were sponsored in as Holocaust refugees or as their grandparents or parents were Holocaust refugees. Um, our communities work really closely with that. But I got to tell you, I'm not getting anti-Semitism from Muslims. I didn't get any death threats from any Muslims. We didn't get a bomb threat from a Muslim. They came from outside the minority communities. And as Dr. Anchasi said, xenophobia, attacking those who are different, attacking those who are viewed as other, those who are viewed as vulnerable. And I have to say, on days when I'm angriest and days when I am most hurt and cynical, what I see and have seen so clearly since October 7th has been the media from Western countries all of whom former colonialist powers or whatever we call the United States that isn't really colonialism but kind of sort of is, pitting two historically disadvantaged religious minorities against each other for attention, for media attention, for fundraising, for compassion, and laid out a narrative that we must be attacking each other. One of the Afghan refugees that our community helped sponsor in said, I'm so sorry to hear what happened. We know what that's like. People do that to our folks too. Terrorism is not ours or theirs. It's not a yours or mine. Military collateral damage and uh, refusal to um, prioritize the needs of innocent civilians and bystanders is not new. And it's not an us or them thing, it's an everybody thing. And I refuse to allow us to be pitted against each other because there is not a daily quota of compassion because everybody's children need to be safe and everybody needs to be happy sleeping in their own beds. It is not only possible, but I think mandatory to be pro-Palestinian health, human rights, dignity, sovereignty, and everything else, and at the same time also be pro-Israel. Those two shouldn't be mutually exclusive, and we're all just talking about what human beings need, basically, and we would be having fewer arguments, and there, I believe, would be less anger and hurt if we were not being further divided by a narrative of us versus them, because I don't think we should have to compete for compassion or news time because everybody's children are important. 
We like to close this uh, show with inviting our um, guests to say what gives them hope. And so I wonder if you would be willing to give us uh, any um, insight into what gives you hope right now. What gives me hope is the simple fact that throughout conflict and war, there's this human being, this is a spirit of humanity that is shining uh, upon all of us. When, when I lose family in Gaza and, and the local rabbis and the local Jewish community send me condolences and send me a, a fruit basket and, and, and give me condolences, um, I, I have hope in humanity. I have hope in humanity when I see different countries coming together to bring humanitarian aid. Uh, I, I have hope in humanity uh, when people are weeping uh, for, in one, one side of the world, uh, for other people on the other side of the world. Perhaps they have nothing in common except their humanity. There's always that human that's going to shine, and there's always that human uh, that's going to prevail. And for that, I have hope. Rabbi, what gives you hope? There is a song that was conf- composed at the beginning of the second intifada in Hebrew, Odiavo Shalom Aleinu, that peace will still come to us and to everyone. And the the song is in Hebrew and the chorus is the word salam, intentionally in Arabic. When my husband encouraged my kids to sing a little bit with us this past Shabbat, that's the song they picked. Knowing that there are still people willing to speak the idea of peace into the world and willing to speak it in a language that's not their own, that gives me hope. The fact that we can still laugh together gives me hope. And I don't think that hope is optional. In this case, I think that we still have to keep moving forward and that getting through this is not optional either, that we have to be okay on the other side and we have to be okay for each other. And we have worked really hard to maintain all of the connections that we've made and are continuing to work hard to make further connections than that. But I also have to say, I'm a simple human being. I'm really uncomplicated. I appreciate the fact that we can still laugh together, that we can still tell jokes together, that we can still play board games together and um, be together in those simple human pleasures. One of the things that didn't get said, so I believe Dr. Anchasi's doctorate was in use of humor in interfaith relations. The only time I ever beat Dr. Anchasi to a joke, he'd broken his foot right before the panel. Um, and I knew that he wasn't okay because, you know, of course he's fine, uh, all the time. And I, I knew something was wrong when I beat him to a joke, but, um, <laughs> when, when we get together, uh, we are still able to laugh together a little bit. That is so nourishing. Prophet Jacob, uh, when he's lost his son, Joseph, he tell his other children, never, ever give up hope. Because as a people of faith, when we say we are giving up hope, that means we're saying God is uncapable and we are not a people who uh, disbelieve in God. So giving up hope is giving up on God and we'll never give up on God. Mm. 
Mm. Well, let me t- let me close by saying you two both give me hope, a great deal of hope. And thank you so much, Dr. Nchasi and Rabbi Jacobson. Thank you so much for speaking with us on this state of belief. God bless you. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Bye-bye. Be sure to subscribe to The State of Belief at Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform or at stateofbelief.com slash new podcast. We need your help to keep making The State of Belief. Become a partner in this crucial work by making a financial contribution today. Information on how to donate is available at stateofbelief.com. That's stateofbelief.com. And share what you're getting out of this show with the people in your networks. Let's get more people listening and keep these conversations going on Facebook and Instagram at State of Belief. That's at State of Belief. The views and opinions expressed on this program do not necessarily reflect those of Religion News Service or Religion News Foundation. State of Belief is produced by Ray Kirstein and is a production of Interfaith Alliance. Become a member today at interfaithalliance.org. And be sure to join us next week. I can't wait. Until then, I'm Paul Brandeis Rauschenbusch on The State of Belief, where religion and democracy meet.